0: Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of E-Sharp Magazine. Go to esharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Eric Vernis. Eric is the Senior Vice President and Chief Economist of Equinor, the energy company known until quite recently as Statoil. Eric, we're going to obviously talk about energy, your producing every year this this very well-regarded and well-received annual survey of, of various scenarios. What does the latest report that you've just released indicate? What are the main trends?
1: Well, the, the main trends as always when you, when you look out the window and see where the global energy markets are going, you get uh, different signals depending on where you want to look. And uh, that's why we make different histories about the future, three different futures, because depending on the weight you put on different assumptions and drivers, you can come to very different ends by 2050, very different worlds. Um, And uh, one of the main challenges that we see this year compared to to, what has gradually come upon us is that some of the positive changes uh, regarding the possibilities for reducing CO2 emissions that we thought we saw over the last three years, for instance, the global CO2 emissions were flat for three years in a row, that has now reversed and CO2 emissions are on the rise again, if you look at it on a global scale. And why is that? Uh, partly, be, mainly because we've had economic growth for quite a while, and, uh, and then energy demand is going up. And to satisfy that energy demand, there's still a tendency both for coal and oil and gas demand to grow, and then CO2 emissions come up. CCS, carbon capture and storage, has, is not developing, and therefore, when, when demand and use of demand for and use of coal and, and uh, oil and gas goes up, then CO2 emissions tend to increase. And right now, they're increasing very rapidly in China. Which is bad. Oil demand grew by 1.7 million barrels per day. That's a lot last year. So, looking at those variables, you can become relatively pessimistic in terms of uh, our abilities to reach climate targets. On the other hand, there's a lot of technology developments, uh, a lot of interesting developments, in particular on electrification of transport. So, we had record sales of electric vehicles last year, which uh, bode well for the potential for that to take a significant chunk of uh, at least the, the light-duty vehicle segment of transport going forward. But it has to grow enormously. One million new cars put on the road
0: So this the, the, uh, the is small. So the upturn in economic growth, which translates, at least for the moment, in increased um, uh, use of fossil fuels, uh, fuels, that is hopefully, in, in your judgment, a, a temporary phenomenon if, if renewables and uh, electricity in particular are, are, are taking up some of the slack?
1: Yeah, it's uh, uh, part of that, and, and uh, I think uh, I think the main the the main hope, the main thing that has to improve significantly in order for us to to have any chance of reaching climate targets, is that the world has to become much more energy efficient. So the so the link between economic growth and energy demand has to weaken, and uh, at some point, probably completely decoupled and and that's not happening now and that needs uh, policy stimulus it needs uh, proper pricing of the things we don't want like carbon Uh, and it needs uh, it needs uh, policies to make uh, new cities in asia more energy efficient Uh, policies in terms of uh, policies that stimulates the use of uh, or the reinstallation and the installation of buildings uh, much more efficient combustion engines etc etc some of that will come automatically Uh, But we need to speed that process up and then we need uh, all the actors in the energy space, from politicians to industries to us as consumers to have the right to, to put in place and have the right signals so that we can act in the right way
0: in your latest report the eighth one uh, you present three scenarios which you call s- reform renewal and rivalry can you take me briefly through each of those three scenarios reform renewal and rivalry
1: yeah the, the scenarios are they have the same names as in uh, the last editions uh, mainly the same drivers as well but of course they're updated with new data and and some new assumptions the reform scenario is the central case it's um, It's based on on the trends and and developments that we see at the moment with a relatively rapid technological development in parts of the energy space, continued economic growth 2.6 percent per year from now to 2050. Um, We assume there relatively, I I should say optimistically, that uh, the national promises, the nationally determined contributions in the Paris Agreement from uh, 2015 will actually be delivered upon, will be fulfilled. And we're very far away from that being the case at the moment and in some countries the, the development goes in the wrong direction but that's a, that's an ambitious assumption until 2030 and then subsequent to that it will be the markets and the technology that drives the development in that scenario we have significant fuel exchanges significant improvements in energy intensity much more than we've had over the last 25 years but we do not reach any climate targets it's not sufficient co2 emissions global co2 emissions barely go down the main reason being With 2.6 percent global economic growth and we have part of that is the reason for that is that we will have two and a half billion more people Uh, and then you have uh, then you have much more demand for goods and services and energy and and that is difficult to combat right then we have the renewal scenario the most optimistic the best scenario the one we should all wish for right Uh, that has slightly higher economic growth on average slightly lower in the beginning and higher at the end in that scenario we assume that the world will actually be able to reduce energy related CO2 emissions sufficiently so that we are on track to reach the two degree climate target with more than 50 percent probability Uh, and then we backcast so we assume we reach that and then we calculate the possible pathway there how could we get there so it's not a forecast it's a backcast Uh, it's an extremely challenging road Uh, And that will deliver an enormous energy efficiency improvement so that we do not use more primary energy by 2050 than we do today in spite of being two and a half times richer, two and a half billion more people, people. India being seven to eight times larger in terms of its economy, driven partly by 300 million new people but also by an enormous economic development. Um, There we have basically all cars, everything light-duty vehicles, will be electric from 2040 and onwards 65% of the new car sales in 2030 is electric in that scenario today is one out of 80 million right so there's a rapid increase Uh, we have more than 50% of global or around 50% of global electricity being generated by windmills and solar panels and then add on more renewable hydro and other types of renewables as well
0: so renewables are taking off but it'll take much longer for them to take off in in a kind of serious way
1: Well, in that scenario, it's taking off enormously rapidly. I mean, the problem now is that they they take off in terms of growth rates, but they start out as such a small share of the global power system, electricity system. And in that scenario, renewal scenario, we also, as an example, we we end up with total fuel use and total use of oil being lower in the aviation sector. Uh, in spite of us possibly traveling three times as many passenger kilometers as today. Aviation is something that tends to grow with economic development. Uh, If you look at uh, at the Chinese international flights, that's one variable that has grown by double-digit numbers in percentage terms since 2000, and it continues to grow. And we can deliver, in that scenario, we deliver all those services, but using less energy. It's an enormous achievement if we can make it. Then we had a third scenario, which is uh, rivalry. It's inspired, and, uh, and that's a scenario where y- you don't find the likes of that scenario in many other publications. Is that more geopolitics? It's driven by geopolitics. It's d- and it's driven by, I would also say, uh, geopolitical conflicts or, ri- or, or ri- r- rivalry, uh, 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 driven by an assumption that other political priorities than climate uh, are legitimate and are driving policies. Right. And one of them would be, ...that you worry more about your own jobs than about efficient economic solutions. And and in such a scenario, you put in place protectionist measures. And and we see that today, right? And and we have sanctions against people or policies or regimes we don't like. Uh, And those are, in some cases, those sanctions and tensions are increasing now. So if we build on those assumptions, then you'll have lower economic growth... ...because of protectionism and, and less exchange of technology. You'll have less energy efficiency because of less exchange of technology and less money to drive the the development. Uh, so we'll be slightly poorer, we'll only be twice as rich and not two and a half times as rich in 2050, uh, but much less energy efficiency improvement and thereby higher energy demand than in the other scenarios and also much higher emissions. One of the key assumptions, if you like, or factors in that scenario is that most, e- most energy demand growth will take place in the countries in Asia where the economic growth is relatively high, even in that scenario. Right. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people that do not have sufficient access to energy, they're energy poor. So growing forward, they will get more energy. And the, the one thing they have in common in Asia is that they have coal. They have indigenous coal resources that, Simple. in such a scenario, is more likely that they will use it, yeah. we think, than in the other scenarios.
0: Understandably so. Right? So
1: that's not a sustainable development. It ha- has much higher CO2 emissions than in the other two scenarios and, and a much lower economic... Well,
0: correct if I'm wrong, I, I I'm guessing that these three scenarios just catch out, they're not sort of mutually exclusive, it's neither one or the other or the other, it, they, I, there could be elements of each one going forward, is De- that correct? Yes,
1: definitely, and, we, uh, and uh, the, the most likely development is probably that we'll end up somewhere in between or oscillate between them, also on a reg- if you do it on a regional dimension you could have very much of the same type of energy and climate policies in, across the scenarios in the EU for instance. A lot of growth in renewables in the EU in a conflict scenario where we do not want to become too dependent on specific suppliers for our gas, for instance, yeah. or coal for that matter, and then you develop renewables. So, re- the regional aspects also, uh, you might have very large differences between the regions. You have, we have a lot of new renewables growth in the rivalry scenario too, but, but far from sufficient, if you like, on a global scale. So, so uh, the reality. We th- I mean, we, th- we think we, and we hope that we span out here with these scenarios and outcome space, which is relatively likely. Right. Each of the scenarios is very unlikely if you, t- if you look at this sort of the, the, So you take elements the, of each one maybe so to that, create it. So if you were to, to make an average, it would not be sustainable in terms of climate, but it would probably be more likely than each of these scenarios taken at face value.
0: Okay, you mentioned at the beginning, but briefly, um, the, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Yeah. Uh, I, I do get that it's still there, and people like yourselves and, and the green NGOs and other groups, campaign groups, refer to the targets set out in the, the Paris Accord. Um, and it's still alive, I know, despite the withdrawal of the United States from it. But to what extent has the withdrawal of the United States had a, a, a serious impact on the kind of credibility or the viability of the Paris Agreement?
1: No, i don't i don't think it has uh, first of all that withdrawal has uh, fortunately been compensated by some of the large states indicating that they stand by the agreement anyway in the us, in, in the US right. different, yeah. and it's a federal it's a federal government yeah. Yeah. and, and yeah. some of the states are frankly very big right i mean california is one of the biggest economies in the world so that's good um i think also it might slow the process or, w- or at least what it what it shows is um and underlines is that there's a, there's a very large discrepancy bec- between the political system's ability to put in place targets for where we go. And actually, uh, that ha- th- th- those targets are being reinforced uh, in the EU uh, and everybody, yeah. <laughs> last night actually, I guess. So, yeah. and, and uh, But there's a very large discrepancy between that and the same politicians or political system's ability to put in place measures to act- that would actually move us in the direction of the targets. Right and that becomes very visible here. I mean the United States is withdrawing from the agreement at the same time their CO2 emissions are going down because of market developments, right? Okay. It's a big paradox. CO2 emissions fell in the US last year. It it, it did not fall in U, in EU.
0: But their economy is doing well, right? But CO2 emissions are going down. Yeah, so because why? because
1: of the growth in gas in, oh, in right. cheap shale okay. gas that is in, and that is forcing out a lot of coal in, in in the electricity system. And of course there's a limit as to how long that can go on. Yeah. And then, and then they have to start. And they also grow renewables quite a bit in the US as well, but on the other hand they buy still a large number of gas guzzling SUVs, and they do more of that when the gasoline price is low, right?
0: So. Okay, a final question, Eric. We have to come and bring this to an end. You've been talking very uh, clearly about the, the giving a world view, a global view of energy and, uh, and emissions uh, in the next period. Um, but let's bring it back, at least to the European Union. As you know, um, we're coming to the end of uh, the current European Commission mandate. Well, it's about a year or so to go, 15 months to go. Um, everybody's talking about what the priorities of the next European Commission will be, you know, in, in all sorts of sectors, not just energy. But from, from your point of view, either from Equinor's point of view or from the energy industry more broadly, what would you like the, the next, even if that sounds idealistic, what would you like the, the next European Commission to focus on in trying to address some of these these concerns that you've been outlining for the past 15 minutes Mm -hmm. or
1: so. Well, I think that, uh, that what is crucially important is to continue the work and speed it up in terms of getting a proper price on carbon. Okay. Uh, and because that will drive the development and let the market the market solve some of these issues on behalf of us all. But we need the incentives. We need a, and, and the paradox is that the more we subsidise renewables, the more we undermine the price of, of carbon, in a sense, right? So you have to strike that balance. So right? the current
0: scheme is not working, obviously. You're saying it. Needs no, to be
1: unfortunately, better. it has actually started to work a little bit better than it did because of the signals of the tightening. Okay. But there's something about tightening the quotas. It's, it's about putting a price on carbon for the parts of, of the emissions that are not within ETS. Is a proper, and, and in many countries we do have that it's about continuing to do, to develop an efficient infrastructure within the eu both in terms of gas deliveries but also think about uh, electricity um, ensuring that we connect different regions in europe that have different different uh, different that that are differently Adapted to the new rules.
0: Are there signs Mm. that the countries, member states, EU are are opened up? That sounds something that the Commission can't dictate that to member states. The member states themselves have sovereignty. Yeah. To be willing. Are there signs? Maybe modest signs that that's starting to happen. I I think.
1: uh, Yeah. I I, I see signs, and I also see some developments of infrastructure that make the interconnectors better and so on. But but there's a lot of potential there. When when do we see a lot of power in in integration between Spain and and France, for for example, to take account of the solar power potential in Spain? The third one that I would start to think about, and where I th- frankly think that, e- that each government needs a help, needs help, is to think seriously through how, uh, what's the optimal regulation of electricity markets when we have so much. At some point, we get a lot of new renewable electricity that has zero marginal cost of production. How do you ensure a proper power price, electricity price, for okay. somebody to be willing to invest in that? Yeah. Because now we're piggyback, we're, we're investing in renewables. You piggyback on the last uh, fossil fuel power plant that that sets the price, right? Right. So it's uh, so that's uh, that's at least a challenge for regulatory regulatory mechanisms and uh, regulatory. So those are
0: your three messages uh, Mm. to the European Commission. I could bring this to a close. uh, Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.